Well, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at uh, various ways in which the gospel um, comes into our life. If you're newer with Emmanuel, uh, in the last couple weeks, this is a a highly unusual uh, series that we're doing because usually I take a passage of scripture, say like 1 Timothy, that we're going to be doing in a couple weeks, and going through sort of verse by verse, section by section to figure out what it is that the uh, the Lord wanted communicated through the original audience. And so uh, this summer, though, we took a little detour to see how the gospel hits us on the ground level and how it, it hits us in our everyday lives. And, and uh, this morning, we're going to look at the area of work. And work is an often, uh, it's overlooked, uh, but it's an incredibly important topic because so much of our work, uh, so much of our lives are dedicated to work and to uh, uh, volunteerism and also just to vocation in, in, in general. Uh, yet we often don't see its importance. We often don't see its dignity. We often don't see its contribution to society or its value uh, or worth in God's eyes. Far too often we see work and vocation as only a means to an end by which we can pay the bills or perhaps go on a vacation or uh, help our our children go to uh, college or even buy recreational toys. We often sing in our hearts with the 80s band Lover Boy. We sing everybody's working for the weekend uh, because that's the way that we, we look at vocation and work. The nine to five only serves as a necessary evil, uh, and we can't wait to get to the weekend, or we can't wait to get to retirement, because it's only then that we can live the, uh, the good life as we believe it was meant to be. But we often see work as only a means to an end, and because of that, we often err into one of two different, uh, different ways. We either become workaholics, and when we become workaholics, work sort of becomes our identity. It sort of becomes what, we're, uh, what we place our value in. And so uh, when we do this, uh, we, we typically go too far in one direction. Or uh, we can often become lazy sloths, and we only do the work that we have to do, whether it's on paper or uh, the work that we feel that we, uh, that we should do at a, at a bare minimum. Uh, almost everywhere that you go today, there's a now hiring sign uh, on the door because there is a worker shortage right now. Um, some places are, are offering crazy amounts of money for what would be even considered menial work. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we ordered something from Jimmy John's, and you couldn't even go up to the uh, the counter because they're in a labor shortage, so all you could do was online uh, ordering. And yet, uh, an article that I read this past week showed uh, showed this Burger King in which they had the employee uh, the employees, but for whatever reason, they all decided to quit. So they put this sign on their marquee, we all quit, sorry for the inconvenience, store shut down, no money's being made for that particular franchise. And clearly we have a work problem in our culture. And I don't think it boils down to just the minimum wage gap. Solomon, who is the wisest person that ever lived besides Jesus Christ, uh, wrote this in Ecclesiastes 3, chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better that a man should rejoice in his work, for this is his lot. So how does this work for Christians? Uh, how, uh, if, if Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that whatever you do, do to the glory of God, obviously this has to fit in our vocational life. And so, uh, our, as our Christian faith, it doesn't wear off as soon as we walk out of these doors. 
but rather it seeps into every uh, avenue of our existence. It ought to shape the way uh, we think about work and our attitudes toward work and hence our productivity at work. Uh, The gospel ought to shine through every endeavor, whether it be marriage or singleness or parenting or growing older, and it must shape our work as well. Whether we're in law enforcement or whether we're in education, staying at home and, and raising our children or even flipping burgers, our work is good and it is worthy of dignity and honor and it demands that we glorify God in it. So we're going to look at four things this morning when we think about vocation. Uh, the theological framework might sound foreign to you, but I'll uh, explain it as we go. We're going to look at it in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And you can think about it this way. We're going to look at what God's original design for work was. And then we're going to ask the question, well, what happened? Why are we at where we're at? And then we're going to look at how do we redeem work? And then finally, we're going to look at what does uh, work look like uh, from here on out, the creation, fall, redemption, and consummation themes. So let's break those down. Number one, we need to go back to the purpose of work. We need to go back to the purpose of work or vocation or volunteerism, however you want to frame that. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was putting together a uh, bathroom shelving uh, unit uh, to go behind our, our, uh, uh, the toilet in our basement, and everything was going really well until I realized that I made a critical error. I had put the shelves on backwards. And so where the shelves have sort of this lip in the back where it's supposed to go up against the wall, it was actually in the front. And while that would have worked really good from, for preventing things from actually falling into the toilet, uh, it's not productive in, in helping you see what's on the shelf or uh, reaching that if, uh, if you're uh, a little bit, uh, little bit shorter. Um, but uh, it would have functioned... Um, but it wouldn't have been as smooth as it was created to do. So what I have to do? I had to take it apart, right? I had to take it apart and I had to go all the way back to the beginning in order to get it to what it was supposed to be. And for many of us, we are uh, functionally working at our places of employment or in the home and we've mentally put the shelves on backwards. Or we've spiritually put the shelf on backwards. We look at work as if it was something that was invented after the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But there's a greater story to work than punishment for sin. And we have to go all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to pre-Genesis chapter 3. We need to go back to the creation account. And straight out of the gates in scripture, the biblical authors present a God who is a worker. This is a God who is a worker himself. There's no hint of laziness on God. Can any of us, when we read the Genesis account, say to God, I mean, seriously, Lord, can you step it up a little bit? No, because he is a worker God. And uh, even before he created everything that exists, before there was time and matter, God was planning. Those plans came into fruition immediately in Genesis 1.1. Where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so what did that look like? Well, it looked like God saying, uh, let there be light. And, and there was light. 
It was God saying, let there be land, let there be water, let there be trees, let there be animals, let there be sky, let there be clouds. And all of this was declared as good. Nowhere in the creation account does God make everything, including mosquitoes for some strange reason, does he sit back and think, hmm, well, I guess that was good enough and, you know, we'll just go with what we got there. No, he, he looks at it and he says, man, that's what I'm talking about. That there is good. And then in one final work of creation, God creates humanity, uh, man and woman. And then he even gives us the blueprints on how he did it in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Uh, Then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, the word um, image in English is sort of derived from uh, this, this word icon. And I like that because I don't have to explain to you what an icon is. Many of you can look down at your clothing and you can maybe see, oh, I have an Under Armour shirt on. Or maybe you can look at your shoes and you can see, oh, I'm wearing Nike shoes. These are the symbols of what represents these particular uh, companies. Many of you could look on your keys right now and on your fob, it would say Toyota or it would say uh, uh, Mitsubishi. Do they make cars anymore? I haven't seen one for a while. Or Ford or 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 Chevy or whatever it is. These icons represent something. When you're on the highway and you see those golden arches that appear magically over the trees, you know what that represents. It represents something that can satisfy your hunger. When God said, let us make man and our humanity, however you want to put it, in our own image, after our likeness, he was branding us in such a way that our actions, our thoughts, and our words reflect, ideally, where we came from and who we belong to. When you look at another human being, there is dignity when you look at another human being because they have the icon of God. It's a reflection of a creator. And because we're in the image of God, we take on some of his attributes. And one of the attributes that we take on is a work ethic. We are about our father's business. As image bearers, Genesis 1 uh, provides uh, this framework. Verse 28 says, God bless them. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. So as image bearers of God, we have four tasks that we are, uh, that we are presented with here. First, we're to be fruitful. That is that we're to be productive. We ought not to be lazy. We ought to see results in what we, in what we do. Multiply. We're to have children and continue, continue the image-bearing process. I, I remember uh, growing up and hearing the mantra all the time saying, well, we're going to have an overpopulation problem, and, and pretty soon there's going to be major issues with, with our population throughout the world. Well, I read an article this last week that said our next problem is underpopulation, that we're not uh, re- reproducing ourselves at a sustainable rate. So which is it? Well, God told us already in his framework, we are to be fruitful and multiply. In the New Testament, that shifts a little bit. 
uh, in the sense that we're to multiply uh, believers into the kingdom of God, but it no less uh, is still, still there. Um, further, we're to, fulfill, um, we're to fill the earth and subdue it. That, that points to the fact that as image bearers, we're to have stewardship over creation. Uh, we are to nurture and care for and protect creation. Uh, chiefly, we're to nurture, care for, and protect uh, other human beings who are in God's image. Uh, so therefore, there is dignity in being a law enforcement officer. There is uh, dignity in uh, even working at something like McDonald's because you are, uh, you are feeding the needs of people at a, at a reasonable price. Uh, might not be healthy, but you're still sustaining them in that sort of sense. Uh, the f- same goes for vet techs, caring for the creation of, of animals. And uh, that's why uh, DNR officers are so important, because they're caring for God's environment. And, and a hotel maid, a stay-at-home mom, uh, a nurse, a doctor, all of these have the roles of caring for God's creation. And all of work has dignity because it contributes to God's creation and the common good of humanity. Uh, this is why the book of Proverbs is uh, so hard-hitting against laziness. In Proverbs 18, 9, it says, the one who is lazy in his work is a brother to a vandal. Never thought about putting those two together before. Chapter 20, verse 4, the slacker, the lazy person, does not plow during planting season. At harvest time, he looks and there is nothing. You don't plant and you go out to pull out a harvest and there's nothing there. Uh, in fact, uh, in, in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul writes this. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he shouldn't eat. Now, this does not mean uh, that there aren't some who can't work because of disability uh, or, uh, or other factors. But it means if you're able-bodied, you should be finding some way to, to make yourself useful and to contribute uh, to not work goes against what we were designed to do. So we need to take the, the shelf apart and we need to rebuild it into what God has called us to do. And we need to get back to the purpose of work, which is to glorify God and display his, his character. But second, we need to figure out what went wrong. We need to figure out what happened. It didn't take me long to figure out what uh, uh, what happened when it came to my shelf, but oftentimes we're reluctant or, or maybe we're even ignorant or in denial with the problem when it comes to work. We might use excuses. You know, my boss is a jerk. My workload is beyond my pay grade or your coworkers are too distracting or uh, whatever it is. There have been many instances, many instances in my professional life that have been incredibly stressful. One in which... I remember even saying to myself sometimes, man, my job is tough and no one, has, no one has a harder job than me. But then I would go and talk to people and I would realize, you know what? Everybody's job is hard. Everybody has different stresses. Everybody has different things that, uh, that they, they deal with. Everyone has crummy and difficult aspects. But why is that? Uh, uh, again, it, going back to the beginning is very, very instructive. Remember that we're created in the image of God. And this God is a worker. We're created for work. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 then says, uh, The Lord took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it 
and watch it, watch over it. This is before anything went wrong. This is what God called him to do. Well, all that's good and has a purpose so far, Genesis 3 tells us what happened. This serpent, who was the devil in disguise, came to Eve and he tempted her with this fruit from the only tree that they were forbidden to eat from. Now, understand that here is a tree that they were called to cultivate and keep, but not to eat from. And they did anyway. And thus sin entered into the world. And here in Genesis chapter 3, it doesn't necessarily say much about them being cursed in and of themselves, but it certainly says that um, their vocation, which was supposed to be joyous, has now become hard. Chapter 3, verse 16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. Your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Now, surprise, surprise, I've never experienced childbirth. But I am told it's very painful and that it is difficult. I certainly know how hard parenting is. And these verses point to how relational harmony, which is also work within a marriage, within a a workplace environment, in, in a community is, is also very hard. The word desire here, where it says your, your desire will be for your husband, this, isn't, this doesn't mean sexual desire um, or relational desire. It's a dominance thing. You will try to rule over your husband. He will, will rule over you. And all this is just getting really messy. For the man, starting in verse 17, uh, God says, the ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow until you return to the ground, since you were taken from it. For for you are dust, and you will return to dust. Now, these verses here are in no way implying that there is some things that are men's work and some some things that that are women's work, except for childbearing, obviously, Uh, but uh, it points to the fact that work was made difficult from then on. Technology will fail you. I have a a saying that technology works really well only when you don't need it to. Those things will go wrong. Your tools will break. Your children will disobey. Your boss will get on your nerves. Schoolwork will be hard if you're a student. Teachers' curriculum will often be painful of getting new curriculum and maybe things that are in that curriculum that maybe you don't want to cover. Uh, In short, work is hard because sin is in the world. The entrance of sin um, didn't just corrupt our moral capacities, but it's weaved itself in every single aspect of life, and work is one of them. So when you go back tomorrow to work, you are going to be hit probably immediately with the reality that sin has touched your work. It has touched your attitude toward work. But when you wake up in the morning and you're tempted to groan because you have to get up and do the same thing as you do every day for eight hours today, you must remember that there's a purpose for it. That you're created for this. You were put in your position by God who made you, who gifted you to do exactly what it is that you were doing. 
He has your best interest in mind as well as the good of society that he has created around us. Yes, sin has affected, has affected it, but there is hope. And that's our third point, is that we need to redeem your work. We need to redeem your work. Uh, Jim Henson, who was the creator of the Muppets and Fraggle Rock and that, uh, that really weird movie Labyrinth, um, and one of my favorite uh, shows from the 90s, Dinosaurs. I don't know if you remember that, where they have these robotic dinosaurs, and this little baby dinosaur would have the frying pan and always hit his dad over the head with it and saying, not the mama, not the mama. Anybody remember that show? Oh, that was a great show. Um, he was known as a workaholic. He was always working. In fact, the only people that he ever socialized with were people that he, that he worked with. He sacrificed his marriage and, and much of his family in order for work. But it's interesting what he said. He said, I don't resent the long work time. I shouldn't. I'm the one who set my life up this way, but I love to work. It's the thing that I get the most satisfaction out of and probably what I do best. Not that I don't enjoy my days off. I love vacations and loafing around, but much of the world has the wrong idea of working. It's one of the good things in life. The feeling of accomplishment is more real and satisfying than finishing a good meal uh, or looking at someone's accumulated wealth. Now, Henson was right and he was wrong. God does not call us to sacrifice our families on the life, on, on the altar of vocation. But the question is, how do we get to the point where we can do work and we can do it heartily and we can do it joyfully? Well, the Bible tells us that we can go to work for the glory of God because a Galilean carpenter went to work for us. And this uh, work that he did wasn't on a workbench. It was on a wooden cross that was made for him. It wasn't made with tools to fashion something for home use. Rather, it would take a hammer and nails and pound into his wrists and into his, his feet. His creation wasn't a piece of art for decoration on the wall. Rather, his work was the image of glory, hanging on a cross and doing the work of redemption. When we think about the life, the death, the uh, resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, we usually do so in terms of his redemptive work only in our spiritual and moral faculties. We were once dead in our sin, right? We've been made alive in Christ, Ephesians 2 tells us. However, uh, we must have a more holistic understanding of the work of redemption that would include Jesus' work of redemption in our labor, when we look at the depth of our sin and the horrific event that took place uh, on the cross, our vocational life ought to give us a new perspective. No longer do we go and do the nine to five just so that we can get a paycheck or only long enough so that we can finally cash in our, our, uh, our retirement funds and move on to the better life. Rather, our work becomes the vehicle by which we can glorify God and introduce others to the gospel. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, uh, he said, You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. 
In the same way, let your life shine, your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. When Jesus said this, he wasn't putting the gospel in a box and covering it up so that it wouldn't be seen by others. It wasn't reserved just for Sunday mornings or when you link arms with your brothers and sisters and put on a barbecue or a pool party. But rather, your light is to shine at work. And whatever you're doing in your life, and this is true, uh, whether or not you're at a place of employment that you can bring up Christianity or not. You can live in such a way and in such a joy uh, that when people see the way that you respond to hardships and work, they can see, man, something's different. And open up avenues by which gospel conversations can potentially happen. This is what uh, Timothy, uh, Paul was uh, alluding to in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when he said, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life to mind your own business, boy, many of us, including me, could certainly benefit from that command, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you so that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. So we were created for work, but gloriously we were redeemed for work as well. So the first step at renewing a theology of, of the practice of vocation is to have that change of attitude that only comes from trusting in Jesus. But how does that work out practically? Well, Paul lays that out for us in Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling. In the sincerity of your heart, as you would Christ. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So don't let the slavery wording here uh, distract you from the point from the point that Paul's making. Slavery in the ancient world is different than it was in the American colonies and in uh, the pre-Reconstruction uh, um, uh, era. Uh, it was quite often voluntary. Most, uh, if not uh, a lot of the uh, slaves were educated and they would go into uh, slavery working in this person's house in order to provide a living and have a decent life. Uh, many of them were considered part of the household um, it doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that there weren't abuses, but we're not talking apples to apples here. Rather, what we ought to see is that when we are redeemed through the gospel, we are to do our work joyfully in obedience because even though we might have someone working over or under us, all of us are an audience of one. All of us are truly only working for one particular person. If we're an employer, we treat our, our workers fairly with good wages. We don't discriminate in our employment. Ultimately, we, we work for God the way that, uh, that we work for under people is a reflection of what we think of the gospel and its application in our lives. So we need to redeem the work. 
And fourth, we need to grasp the significance of our work. Let's talk about the consummation. Let's say we get it right. We've redeemed, uh, we've seen the purpose, we've mourned what's gone wrong, we've redeemed uh, the idea of work, and now we're at the end. The work is done, the day is over, and we are finally now going to be with Jesus in heaven, in that great retirement in which you are brought safely into the kingdom of God. What then? Does our work have any bearing on the consummation of our lives and in the consummation of time? I think it does. In Matthew 25, Jesus is in in the middle of this lengthy discussion uh, about the end of time and the future and beyond. And in verses 14 through 30, he tells a story of what we typically call the parable of the tenants. And so he has three people. He's going to go off for a little while, and he uh, makes these three people stewards of his riches, and he expects that they're going to take care of them and steward them well. And he leaves for a while and he comes back and finds that one has done really well. He's, he's gained some interest back and things have gone very quite well. And the second one, still the same. And the third hasn't done anything. He condemns the man with, when, he gave him, when he came back and saw that he had done nothing. To this master, it was a, it was a waste. But to the other two, they diligently worked to increase his wealth while he was gone to increase his worth, and the wealth by which he returned to him will bring him much honor, it'll bring him much glory, and it'll bring him much joy in the ages to come. And then he says to them in verses 21 and 23, he says the same thing, well done, good and faithful servant. You're faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come, share in your master's joy. So your work, your vocation, your volunteerism is noted by God. He sees it. He honors it. And when we diligently care to bring him glory and honor and wealth of fame through those avenues, we are fulfilling one of our purposes. And he will reward us. He won't reward us with a paycheck, but he will reward us with joy in his presence forever. And I get it. Your job is hard but it's worth it. There's no menial work for you or anyone here that does not know God. Your work counts for something. It counts for God's common grace in taking care of the world and society. It counts for God being known as worthy and uh, worthy of praise and being treasured. Much of our work is backbreaking and heartbreaking. But Jesus is clear that he is for the workers. In Matthew chapter 11, he says this. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. All you who work, all you who slave, all of you who labor, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls.
for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So from the forklift to putting the fork on the table so that your family can enjoy supper, your work is worship. So let's go and praise our maker for his gift of work. Let's pray.